Welcome back once again, ladies and gentlemen. Wow, I think I just doubled my listenership. Thanks to all you Chinese martial arts lovers for taking the time to check out the last episode. Laszlo Montgomery here with part two of this very, very brief overview of a subject that deserves its own podcast genre. It's so vast. Last time we convened, I tried to show how Chinese martial arts, Kung Fu, Kung Fu, Wu Shu, Wu Yi, all those different names for the same thing, how this all started and how it developed in China throughout the centuries. I know a lot of you were hoping I was going to introduce more of the styles and techniques and whatnot associated with each school. Uh, Chris B. out in the great football capital of Manchester, England, was really lobbying for Tai Chi Chen to be included. That'll get its own episode one of these days. Martial arts, that's one of those things. To introduce the subtleties and mark differences of even a few of the more popular styles. And once you start talking about this, you got to talk about that, and on and on it goes. And, well, I didn't want to make this another Si Ku Quan Shu, so I hope you still enjoy the, the well, I hesitate to call it the fast food version. Oh, that stuff's not good for you. I know a lot of you were hoping to get a deeper dive than what I was able to put together. If at least a few of you got inspired to explore martial arts a little bit more, eh, my job is done. I could die in peace. Once again, a lot of Cantonese and Mandarin names and terms. Everything is located on my website at teacup.media if you want to follow along. All the Chinese, English, and I put the Cantonese romanization as well. Uh, that might make it easier to follow. Wing Chun or Yong Chun in Mandarin. That's a style of Gong Fu that's popular and practiced in probably every country on the planet, I'm guessing. It's a global thing, not to mention something of great cultural pride to a lot of Chinese for you know, their particular contribution to bringing this to the world. Martial arts didn't only come out of China. I mean, anywhere there were humans congregating together, these arts emerged. Every culture and civilization, past and present, have their own martial arts history. But like with Chinese tea, ceramics natural medicine, science, civil engineering, and so much more. The Chinese contribution to the martial arts became something uh, particularly spectacular and refined. Chinese wushu was unique. For example, how over the centuries it became so infused with ancient Chinese thought from Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. It was a source of fascination to people everywhere, practitioners and non-practitioners of Gong Fu, for its balance of aesthetic elegance and deadliness. So let's sit back and zoom in from lower down than the uh, Felix Baumgartner level of last episode and enjoy some of the legends of Wing Chun Kung Fu, and then we'll look at the Ip Man lineage and talk about this man whose name and Reputation has grown far beyond his original achievements as a teacher and popularizer of Wing Chun. After so many films, Ip Man and Wing Chun have become part of worldwide popular culture. So we'll look at his life, too. And in looking at anyone's life in China, it's another chance to study it in the context of the Chinese history they lived in. Ip Man... He lived 1893 to 1972. The arc of his life stretched from the Guangxu Emperor to Richard Nixon's visit to China during the week that changed the world. So we'll look at Grandmaster Ip, 
later on. After more than 2,500 years of development that continues even into our day, when you distill it down into its essence, Chinese wushu, or martial arts, is practiced in order to achieve three things primarily. Improving your health, in particular your motor, nervous, respiratory, and cardiovascular systems. Secondly, and I dare to say most famously, as a means of self-defense. And lastly, these martial arts, as developed in China, became a vehicle for all manners of xiushan, or self-cultivation. This holistic kind of wushu wasn't just learning how to defend yourself and put away an opponent. It concerned your entire being. Not just your physical being, your mind, your spirit, and your qi. I know I didn't say much of anything about qi and qigong. This is the life force inside you, and from which all things are made, if you... Remember from the uh, philosophy series, Tai Chi or Tai Chi Quan, Ba Gua Zhang, and Xing Yi Quan, these three most popular styles of martial arts are saturated with Chinese philosophy, yin yang theory, Wu Xing, the five elements. They're all tied together. Tai Chi Quan is closely related with the Tai Chi Tu Shuo, Zhou Dunyi's masterwork referenced last episode, the diagram explaining the supreme ultimate. In fact, I'm going to post the PDF infographic that accompanied the History of Philosophy series, which has the Tai Chi Tu Shuo on it. Matt Sheehan was kind enough to uh, tweet that freebie from the marketing department of Teacup Media out to the world last night. You can download that with my compliments. Looks great in 11 by 17 A3 size. Laminated, of course, as Matt did. I actually posted it on the webpage from last episode and forgot to mention that, so... Please go groove on that useful infographic, teacup.media. Or if that's too complicated, just email me at laszlo at teacup.media, and I'll personally send you a PDF. And yin-yang, these two opposing forces, also discussed ad nauseum in that philosophy series, these complementary opposites were always front and center in Chinese martial arts, especially as the momentum picked up in the Northern and Southern Dynasties period. Yin, yang, exhale, inhale, fast, slow, stretch, recoil, rise, fall, open, closed, solid, empty, hard, soft, attack, defend. Yin and yang, complementary opposites. And I didn't mention last episode that according to martial arts historian Kang Ge Wu, there are 129 different kinds of boxing, or quan, and over 100 different kinds of cold weapons. Cold weapons, again, from last episode, was anything that didn't use gunpowder. Peter Lorge, in his book, Chinese Martial Arts from Antiquity to the 21st Century, said, quote, No currently practiced style of Chinese martial arts can reliably trace itself back more than a few centuries, and most much less than that. End quote. But last episode, we saw how everything there is today, and that developed since the late Qing dynasty, all came from a body of work that had been continuously improving since the earliest days of recorded Chinese history in the Shang dynasty. These ancients left records, many of which somehow managed to make it into our day. A lot of it in the forms of legends and highly unbelievable stories, but also in other forms that showed how Chinese wushu evolved over the dynasties. 
So anyway, let's look at the uh, Wing Chun style as an example of one of the hundreds of other styles of Chinese martial arts. I only mentioned, what, maybe five or six. I mean, that's the proverbial tip of the iceberg. If you Google list of Chinese martial arts, you'll see there are maybe around 60 or 70 different kinds that come up, including Wing Chun, Jing Wu, Ba Gua Zhang, Wu Xing Quan, and for many of these styles, they can be even further broken down into regional or other kinds of variations. But the Wing Chun style of Chinese Kung Fu was destined for immortality, thanks to it being the style Bruce Lee made famous in his movie career, which acted as a kind of gateway for millions of people everywhere to, you know, Chinese martial arts. 1966, 1967, I watched every single episode of The Green Hornet. Van Williams is Britt Reed. Bruce Lee is Cato. Bruce Lee's real name was Lee Chun-Fan. But in Hong Kong and elsewhere, he's better known by his stage name of Lee Xiaolong. Xiaolong means little dragon. He studied Wing Chun under Ip Man. So brilliant and magnificent was the legacy of Bruce Lee's achievement. One of Ip Man's own legacies ended up being the teacher who taught Wing Chun-style Kung Fu to Bruce Lee. But no less important, Ip Man, along with his son Ip Jun, Ye Jun, and other disciples, they acted as ambassadors to the world for this southern style of Chinese Kung Fu. It's practiced in probably every country in the world. And there's plenty of people like me who don't practice Chinese martial arts, but have witnessed the spine-chilling skills and beauty of Wing Chun on the silver screen. So let's close out this CHP martial arts overview with the legends and lore behind the creation of Wing Chun and the man who brought it to Hong Kong and from there to the whole world. Like I mentioned last episode, Shaolin Temple, being such a high-profile place as it was, inevitably got sucked into imperial politics. Who knows for sure when this happened, but the monks at Shaolin were somehow tied to some anti-Qing dynasty conspiracies, and though this isn't documented so far as I know, sometime in the mid-1800s, the Manchu army moved in and put the place to the torch. Aside from destroying Shaolin, they killed a lot of monks and tried to rip this problem they believed they had there up by the roots. Whenever there was even mild suspicion about some conspiracy to overthrow the Qing and restore the Ming dynasty, you know, the Manchus took that threat very seriously and didn't mess around. Unfortunately for the Qing court, five senior masters from Shaolin Temple escaped, and these became known as the legendary Five Elders, the Shaolin Wuzu. What Bodhidharma started some 1,300 years before at this temple during the Northern and Southern Dynasties period, was rescued from possible oblivion by these four men and one woman. Wing Chun is rooted in the Gong Fu styles that came out of this Shaolin temple, located on Shaoshi Peak of the Song Mountains in Henan Province, and of the five elders who escaped the swords of the Qing army. The one we're most concerned with is the woman, Ng Mui, or Wu Mei in Mandarin. The other four were Master Zhishan Chanshi, Baimei Daoren, a Taoist priest, Feng Daode, and Miao Xian. Lots of legends and stories about each of these Wuzu, or five elders of Shaolin Temple. 
all of the southern styles of Chinese Gong Fu, not just Wing Chun, are traced back to Master Jirshan Chanshi, the abbot of the legendary Fujian Southern Shaolin Temple, where some of those who escaped the Qing army ended up. Let me just say here, there are more than one version of who Master Jirshan Chanshi was and what his association with the northern and southern temples actually was. Wu Mei Da Shi, she was the most legendary and greatest of these five elders, and she was the creator of Wing Chun. Her father was a general, which explained how she became familiar with Wu Shu early in life. She also may or may not have been a Buddhist nun living at Shaolin when the Qing army came calling. Now, lacking the physical advantages of her male inhabitants of Shaolin Monastery, Wu Mei had developed her own variation of the styles taught at Shaolin over the centuries. She had meticulously studied the masters there, and from their teachings and techniques, she developed a way that took their gong fu a bit further. She created a style that had two primary advantages. Its effectiveness as a means of self-defense and attacking didn't depend so much on strength, and this style could be picked up and mastered quicker than most other styles of gong fu. It didn't matter if you were Donnie Yen, 5'8", 165 pounds, or Karim Jabbar, or a young teenager. If properly learned, it worked the same. Wu Mei had devised a way to use the opposing yin energy to redirect an opponent's force, rather than what most styles taught, to use yang energy to crash up against an opponent. Anyone who has seen the Ip Man movie can remember the the wooden object he constantly practiced on. It's called a wooden dummy in English and a mu ren zhuang in Chinese. I read a story that mentioned the design of this iconic Wing Chun training device is credited to Wu Mei. Just saying. The legend, it's as good a legend as any of them, said that Wu Mei's inspiration for some of the movements in her style came from observing duels in nature between either a crane and a snake or a stork and a rodent. She had seen in nature that certain animals were given the gifts of being able to attack and defend simultaneously through the efficiency of their movements, their speed, dexterity, and sheer focus and concentration. Something that was perfect for close-range hand-to-hand combat. So as we discussed last episode with Wang Lang and the Praying Mantis style, Wu Mei, as well, received her burst of inspiration from nature and applied it to human beings. As far as the southern Shaolin Temple went, there's a very murky legend, and that's all it is for any lack of any halfway decent substantiation, that says when the Qing military went in and destroyed Shaolin Temple, it was to Fujian province that some of these five elders went and re-established a southern Shaolin Temple down there. The only problem, as I said, is no concrete evidence of anything and no temple was ever found. But oral tradition is often rooted in truth, and I won't say there was never a southern temple. But from this southern temple, somewhere in Fujian, the arts of Shaolin were perpetuated and continued to develop. Another version of the southern temple legend says that after Shaolin Temple was attacked and all five elders scattered, Wu Mei ended up in some town near the Yunnan-Sichuan border area in southwest China, at a place called the White Crane Temple. Living there also by chance 
was a certain man named Yim Yi. That's his Cantonese name, Yan Er in Mandarin. He was from Guangdong and had been unjustly accused of some crime and had fled to this same general area. Multiple stories about who he was. And it was Yim Yi's daughter who was named Yim Wing Chun, Yan Yong Chun. Together, they lived in this remote place in southwest China, and she helped her father out at his modest tofu stall at the local market. Now, in the old Chinese traditional style, young Yim Wing Chun had already been betrothed to a local boy named Liang Bok Chao, Liang Bo Chou in Mandarin. As fate would have it, there was also some local warlord, strongman, you know, a tough guy, the, the kind nobody likes and who has been a Hollywood staple since the 1920s. Yim Wing Chun had caught his eye, and he took one look at her and was lovestruck. Using his position of power and dominance, he started making moves on Yim Wing Chun and demanded her hand in marriage from Yim Yi. Well, here's where things get interesting. Some local woman who was a regular customer of Yim Yi at his dofu stand, saw what was happening and stepped in to help. And this woman was none other than Wu Mei herself, one of the escaped five elders of Shaolin Temple. And to this location, by sheer chance, she had fled. She approached Yim Yi and said she saw what was going on and wanted to assist him in his time of need. She told him she was willing to teach and train his daughter in the Gong Fu style, that she had developed herself during her time at Shaolin Temple. She told Yim Yi she could teach his daughter this martial art quickly and that she would be able to make fast work of this brute in a competition. Yim Yi was able to perform some fancy footwork with this antagonist who had invaded their peaceful life, and he made a deal with him whereby he would agree to his daughter's hand in marriage if, after a certain agreed-upon period, he could defeat her in a martial arts competition. And if he bested his daughter, they would marry at once. If not, no woman, no cry. And after the details were worked out, Wu Mei went to work. She trained Yim Wing Chun this style of Gong Fu that she had developed herself up at Shaolin. She taught young Yim Wing Chun, or Yan Yong Chun, everything she knew. And because this style of Kung Fu Wu Mei had developed could be learned quickly and didn't require such physical strength that comes naturally to a man, Wing Chun picked this skill up quickly. Of course, it didn't hurt having one of the five elders of Shaolin Temple as your Sifu. When the day finally came, and it didn't even take a year, the match was held with the unwanted suitor, and he was defeated soundly by Yim Wing Chun. And as the whole village celebrated, and with her work done, Wu Mei told Yim Wing Chun to go forth and spread this style of Kung Fu wherever she traveled. And the last thing Wu Mei told her student was to teach this Kung Fu to all who wish to learn it, with the ultimate objective being to use this skill in the fight against the Manchu Qing Dynasty and to restore the Ming. And with that, Wu Mei departed and was never seen or heard from again. Actually, throughout Chinese history, one constant that held... Actually, throughout Chinese history, one constant was that the most glorious use of these wushu, these martial arts, was to use them in the defense of the country. The damsel in distress, the oppressed villagers, sure, help those guys out too. But nothing 
out-trumped utilizing these skills in the service of your country. So Yim Wing Chun was now free to marry her beloved Liang Bok Chao, Liang Bo Chou, and she taught her husband the entirety of her Wing Chun skill set as it was taught to her directly by one of the five elders of Shaolin Temple. Liang Bo Chou was a fast learner, and in time, he not only mastered Wing Chun Gong Fu, he gave the style its name, using his wife for inspiration, of course, and began to take on students. This was late 18th century, early to mid-19th. And this is the genesis of the lineage that led directly to Ip Man and ultimately to Bruce Lee. And with all the interest generated by this great Hong Kong superstar with his charisma, his acting chops, and his sheer love and perfection of his craft, Bruce Lee inspired millions more around the world to follow the Wing Chun path. This is where it all began. There are multiple versions of stories about Liang Bo Chou and how he came into Yim Yi and Yim Wing Chun's world and his role in handing down the mantle of leadership of this school to the next generation. As one of the legends go, the student who inherited his Sifu, Liang Bo Chou's mastery, was Liang Lan Guai, Liang Lan Gui. Lan Guai Fong was not named after him, but they share the same name. Liang Lan Guai was the next who mastered Wing Chun and carried on the teachings passed on to him by Liang Bo Chou. This is still the 19th century. My apologies as I switch back and forth between the Cantonese and Mandarin names of all these people. Although I lived in Hong Kong nine years, I only managed to understand some Cantonese, but I never learned how to speak it. And what little I learned, I never learned how to speak it properly. I'm much more comfortable referring to everyone by their Mandarin name. As always, well, almost always, all of the Chinese terms you hear in this episode are meticulously listed on the webpage in a downloadable format. From here on out, we're only talking about Kung Fu as it developed in southern China. The North did it one way, and the South, they had their own styles. Some will say the Northern styles used more kicking, and the South was more about striking and boxing. Yeah, I'm sure it's slightly more complicated. But being a Southern Chinese story, these greats I'm going to mention, well, they're all better known by their Cantonese name, so... Just another nod to my Cantonese speakers, sorry if this ends up sounding weird, referring to most everyone by their Mandarin names. I'll stick with Ip Man rather than referring to him as Ye Wen. Okay, back to our story. This is where the fabled Red Boat Opera comes in. It may not be wholly true, but if the events unfolded the way Ip Man and others said they did, and the way I'm describing here, what a story it was. It went like this. There was this traveling opera company called the Red Boat Opera Troupe, or the Hongchuan Shiban. Disguised as itinerant theater performers, a legendary group of kung fu masters traveled on this boat from river town to river town and performed Cantonese, or perhaps Foshan, opera for all the locals. Their skills and acrobatics were huge crowd pleasers, and they had rightfully made a name for themselves along the rivers where their Hongchuan traversed. But as the legend goes, while they went from place to place and performed for the townspeople, at the same time, they would also spread anti-Qing dynasty propaganda and urge the people to rise up when the time came. Two of the opera performers on the Red Boat were named Liang Yitai and Wang Hua Bao, Liang Erdi and Huang Hua Bao. They had once studied Wing Chun from Liang Lan Guai, who, as I 
just said, was a student of Liang Boqiu, husband of Yim Wing Chun, who, as I said, learned this style of kung fu straight from the tap, from Wu Mei Dasher. But what a coincidence again. Besides Liang Yitai and Wong Wa Bo, who else happened to be working as a cook on the red boat, hiding out in plain sight? It was none other than the escaped abbot of Shaolin Temple himself, Jershan Chanshir, Abbot Jershan. After the Southern Temple had been destroyed by the Manchus, fled the scene and ended up talking his way onto this red boat. As I said, working as a cook and waiting for the right time to reveal himself. Abbot Jershan had become a master of a weapon called the six and a half point pole, the Liu Dian Ban Gan. This was a 240 to 260 centimeter long pole. That's 94 to 102 inches for my fellow non-metric speaking Americanskis. This six and a half point pole, along with the butterfly swords, are the two primary weapons used in Wing Chun. Abbot Jershan taught Liang Yitai and Wang Wa Bo his mastery of the long pole. And Liang Yitai and Wang Wa Bo thereupon taught Abbot Jershan the Wing Chun Gong Fu taught to them by Liang Lan Guai. And from this union of skills, the six and a half point pole, the Lok Ding Bun Guan, or Liu Dian Ban Gan, long pole, became part of Wing Chun. The next Wing Chun master lived from 1826 to 1901. He was the immortal Liang Zhan, Mr. Liang from Foshan, they called him, among other epithets. He was a well-known person in Foshan who ran an old-fashioned Chinese apothecary. He was the herbalist of choice for local Foshanese whenever they had one kind of ailment or another. One day was visited at his shop by Liang Yitai. Remember him? He was one of the guys who worked on the Red Boat Opera. Liang Yitai had a chat with Liang Chan, and after a while he agreed to take Liang Chan on as a student. So both Liang Yitai and Wong Wapau passed on their mastery of Wing Chun to Liang Chan or Liang Zan in uh, Mandarin. And many said, so incredible, so accomplished and precise were Liang Zan's skills that he took Wing Chun to a new level, sort of finishing it off, like a yi zi zhi shi who perfects a piece of writing with a single added character. Liang Zan, who was born sometime in the early 1820s or thereabouts, would later go on to become one of the greatest and certainly most revered of all Wing Chun masters. In his own day, he was also known as the Wing Chun Kun Wang, the Yong Chun Quan Wang, the king of Wing Chun fists or Wing Chun fighting. No kidding. 300 challengers went down in defeat against Liang Zan. Yeah, Liang Zan and Floyd Mayweather Jr., undefeated baby. No one ever beat Liang Zan. He was so renowned in his day for his fighting skills, not only against other challengers within the Wing Chun school, but he'd take on comers from other schools, no matter their style. Beat them all. Liang Zan has also been kind of a staple in a lot of old and new kung fu movies and TV dramas. He was from so long ago, and it's hard to separate the facts from the fake news, but he's certainly revered. In his career, Liang Zan only had time to teach three students, two of which were his sons, Liang Bi and Liang Chun. The third student was a local money changer in Foshan named Chen Hua Shun. 
He lived 1833 to 1913. Chen was already quite accomplished in other styles of Kung Fu before he began studying Wing Chun under Liang Zan. As the story goes, I don't know, he was sort of a Samo Hong, Hong Gumbo kind of a guy. Big and beefy from carrying all these heavy coins he exchanged at his money changer stall. Very, very stout and strong. Not too long after Liang Zan passed in 1901, this student, Chen Shun, opened up a Wing Chun school in Foshan as a way to show his respect for his Sifu. Chen Shun only had a few disciples, the last one of which was Ip Man. Ip Man, as I said, that's my incorrect Cantonese pronunciation of the Mandarin Ye Wen. He too, like these others I just named, also came from the same great cultural powerhouse of Foshan, Guangdong Province, the home of Cantonese opera, Wushu, lion dancing, and Lingnan Wushu. Lingnan, this term perhaps you recall from the recently concluded history of China-Vietnam relations, Lingnan was that part of China that included southern Guangdong, Guangxi, and northern Vietnam. So Lingnan is synonymous with southern China, with an emphasis on southern Guangdong, perhaps you could say. And that is right where Foshan is located, north of Jiangmen and Zhongshan, southwest of Guangzhou, and on the other side of the Pearl River Delta from Dongguan. And because of the plethora of great martial arts masters who came out of Lingnan in general, and Foshan in particular, that place is also called the Wushu Zhixiang, the land of martial arts. Ip Man came from money, which meant he received a nice education growing up in Foshan and enjoyed an early life filled with refinement and all the best uh, traditional Chinese education had to offer. He started off as a student of Chen Shun. Master Chen was way too serious about his craft, and when Yip Man first showed up at his wuguan for lessons, at first Chen was reluctant to take on this young rich kid as a student. He didn't want to waste his time or waste something so important as his mastery of Wing Chun on someone so young and with such seemingly little prospects. But Chen Huashun did decide to teach young Ip Man, charging him some exorbitant instruction fee, which the Ip family willingly forked over, proving the old adage that every person has their price. Unfortunately, Yip Man was only able to study a few years with Chen Huashun before the grandmaster, who had studied directly under Liang Chan, one of only three students, passed in 1906. From that point on, and into the 1920s, Chen Huashun's most accomplished student, Ng Zhong So, took over the mantle of Wing Chun Master, and as the teacher of all those in the 1930s, who would go on to personal greatness. In Mandarin, he was called Wu Zhongsu. No one was more important to Wing Chun in teaching the next generation of greats than Wu Zhongsu. He didn't have the name recognition of his more famous students, but during the 1910s and 20s, he was the public face and greatest living practitioner of Wing Chun. Wing Chun in the 1930s was still just one of many styles being practiced all over southern China, and of course in Foshan. And as far as styles went, Wing Chun was hardly the most popular. Chen Huashun had been the first to open a formal school that taught Wing Chun publicly, but it had 
hardly made a big splash. And besides, as I mentioned last episode, the Boxer Rebellion, which had nothing to do with Wing Chun and not much to do with boxing either, it had besmirched the martial arts, in the West anyway, but also to a degree in China. I don't know if the outcome of the Boxer Rebellion and the vilification of those who participated in it had any real impact on how the Chinese viewed Wushu at a mass level. But in the international communities, this was feared or looked down on. Wushu, in Chen Huashun's time, was more and more starting to branch out into a form of both physical and mental self-cultivation. Up to that point, it had predominantly been practiced for other reasons, to prepare oneself for a life in the military for one, or law enforcement. By the 1920s, and certainly in the 1930s, the idea that people might practice wushu as a hobby, or for the love of the art, or as a way to belong, it started to take off. It still had a long way to go before it reached the heights of our modern day, but on the eve of the Japanese invasion of China, 1937, it was already more than just a way to train for some kind of career that might require this skill set. As I said, Chen Huashun's greatest student was Ng Zhong So. In his dying days, Chen Huashun implored Ng Zhong So to continue teaching Ip Man, this student who he saw so much potential in. Ng Zhong So was true to his word and took over as Ip Man Sifu, teaching him the same Wing Chun style of Gong Fu that Wu Mei herself developed up in Shaolin Temple all those years ago. The center of gravity for this style of Chinese wushu continued to be in the city of Foshan. There, Ip Man continued his training in Wing Chun, along with a few other students that Ng Zhong So took on. Besides Ip Man, there was also Yuan Kei San and Yao Choi, who collectively, with Ip, became known as the three heroes of Wing Chun, the Yong Chun San Xiong. Ng Zhong So was their Sifu. Yuan Kei San, or Ran Qishan, besides his renown in China as a master of Wing Chun, was also credited with bringing this martial art to Vietnam. Yo Choi, or Yao Tsai, lived 1890-1956. He was also of that fifth generation of Wing Chun greats who studied with Ip Man, though some stories claim that for a while at least he was Ip Man's Sifu, but he was certainly one of the greatest of his generation, the three heroes of Wing Chun. Ip Man's family sent him to Hong Kong as a young teen to further his studies. He was enrolled at the famous St. Stephen's College, still around today, 22 Tong Tao Wan Road in Stanley, a, a historic institution for a number of reasons, mentioned in a couple past episodes. As fate would have it, in 1908, during his days as a young student in Hong Kong, Ip Man ran into Liang Bi. Remember him? Liang Bi, the son of Liang Zhan, the great master who, you recall, had remained undefeated in 300 bouts. So there in Hong Kong, Ip Man continued his Wing Chun studies with this Liang Bi. First Chen Huashun, then Wu Zhongsu, and now Liang Bi. No shortage of great teachers for Ip Man. My Hong Kong listeners are probably thinking, geez, this guy switches back between Cantonese and Mandarin. Can he just pick one? <laughs> Sorry about that. As far as how Ip Man and Liang Bik got hooked up in Hong Kong, there's an old story about how Ip Man once stepped in to defend some local Hong Kong person who was being roughed up unjustly and manhandled by the police. As it went, he 
kung fu'd the cop and laid him down gently in front of us, several witnesses. And one of these bystanders who saw the whole thing relayed the story to Leung Bik, who later arranged a meet-up with Ip Man, and as I said, became his Sifu. For ten years, he stuttered under Leung Bik, Liang Bi, the son of the master Liang Chan, who had learned these skills from the men of the storied Hong Chuan Shi Ban, the Red Boat Opera Troupe. Around age 24, Ip Man went back to Foshan and ended up running a small Wing Chun school there. This is in the mid-1930s. Then, in 1937, not a good year for China, Japan launched their invasion. And it didn't take long for Foshan to be overrun with Japanese imperial troops. Those of you who saw the first Ip Man movie, the 2008 film starring Donnie Yen, recall things didn't go well for Ip Man and all Chinese residing in Foshan under the Japanese occupation. It was a miserable time, and the teaching of Chinese martial arts was impacted. I'm sure the drama depicted in the first movie didn't go exactly like that, but anyone unfamiliar with Japan's 1937 and 1945 occupation of certain parts of China, that movie helped to lift the curtain up a few inches. You got the idea. But after the war ended in 1945, China didn't catch much of a break and had to endure four more years wrecked by civil war. During that time, Ip Man was still in Foshan and worked as a policeman for the nationalist government. And then in 1949, when the nationalists were defeated, Ip Man fled to Hong Kong for safety. A lot of people who had not supported the communists during the Civil War had the same idea. And there in Hong Kong, Ip Man, with the help of a good friend and Foshan Homi, started a Wing Chun school at the Kowloon Hotel Staff Association headquarters. This was like a restaurant workers' union. And he later opened up another school in 1967 called the Wing Chun Athletic Association, the Yong Chun Ti Yu Hui. Slowly, slowly, Ip Man's renown in Hong Kong for his teaching abilities and for the Wing Chun style that he brought to that place gained in reputation and popularity. Prior to Ip Man, Wing Chun style Kung Fu wasn't as well known in Hong Kong. The awareness all began with Ip Man. And though the style was gaining every day in popularity, the teaching of students didn't make Ip Man a rich man. Ip Man's greatest legacy would probably be all he did in creating this awareness about Wing Chun and laying the foundation that allowed the art to spread around the world. But he's most famous, perhaps, as the first teacher of Bruce Lee. In 1950, right after Ip Man arrived in Hong Kong and after the establishment of the PRC, the Chinese character for Wing Chun, Yong Chun, was changed. Initially, Yong Chun meant eternal spring. Yong means eternal, forever. This was Yim Wing Chun's name. But Grandmaster Ip Man called for a change in the Chinese character Yong to a different character. It was still Yong, third tone, but now a new character. This new one meant to chant or to sing, so it could be literally translated as Yong Chun Chen, singing spring fist. Yong also means to express or narrate in poetic form. The English spelling for Wing Chun was also given a, an official name change from W-I-N-G-C-H-U-N to V-I-N-G-T-S-U-N. Today, there are over two million people around the world learning and practicing the Wing Chun style of Chinese Gong Fu. 
that had its roots in Shaolin Temple. You could see in all the Ip Man movies, Master Ip was often puffing away on a zig. I mean, he died from throat cancer on December 2nd, 1972, seven months before the death of his most famous student, Bruce Lee. As the stories go, Ip Man was no stranger to the opium pipe either. Because of the forbidden nature of opium in our day, a lot of hay is made about Ip Man and his association with opium, but nobody was following him around with a GoPro or iPhone, so short of that, who knows how much of this was true. He was the ninth-generation grandmaster of Wing Chun, going all the way back to one of the Shaolin Wuzu, the five elders of Shaolin Temple, Wu Mei. Ip Man lived his last years in Mong Kok, 149 Tong Choi Street, not too far from Nathan and Mong Kok Roads. And in the tradition of Liang Zhan, who passed his mastery of Wing Chun on to his sons, Liang Bik and Liang Chun, so did Ip Man with his sons, Ip Jun and Ip Jang, who in the north of China are known as Ye Jun and Ye Xue Zheng. I forgot where I read this, but I heard after Ip Man passed, they found thousands and thousands of dollars and undeposited checks in his flat, probably from students who he knew couldn't afford the training, so he just let them pay him, but he never cashed the checks. Sort of what kind of a person he was. It didn't end with Ip Man, of course. Succeeding Ip Man later as Grandmaster was Moyat. In Mandarin, his name was pronounced Mei Yi. He lived 1938 to 2001 and had studied under Ip Man from 1957 till Ip's passing in 1972. Moyat was 34 at the time of his Sifu's death. His name had been bestowed upon him from his Sifu, Ip Man. He was the one who gave Moyat his, uh, his name. This was the time, 1970s, that the so-called Cambrian explosion occurred, not only with Wing Chun, but of so many other ancient and modern styles that came out of Hong Kong and greater China and out into the world. Moi Yat, by the way, had been introduced to Ip Man by his cousin, Moi Bing Hua, who was fortunate to have also counted himself among Ip Man's students. And uh, I mentioned this, Amoy Binghua just passed away recently on uh, May 26th, about a month ago. Moi Yat had begun teaching in Hong Kong in 1962. He became the youngest Sifu ever of Wing Chun, attaining this level by the time he was 24. The reason for Grandmaster Moi Yat's mention is that Besides his achievements in mastering Wing Chun and his tireless dedication to teaching, he moved to New York City, and he opened up a wuguan, or martial arts studio, and he brought Wing Chun to the Big Apple. And now it's been generations since Moyat came to these shores, and Wing Chun has, I guess you could say, spread out across the entirety of America. And I'm not just talking about the lower 48. One of Moyat's more well-known students was Sonny Tang, another Hong Konger who went out into the world and brought the Wing Chun he learned under Ip Man and Moi Yat to England, first to Worcester in 1971 and then on to our great and friendly neighbor to the north, the nation of Canada. By the way, it was recently announced we'll co-host the 2026 World Cup along with Mexico and the USA. Going back to the beginning with Wu Mei, who taught this martial art to the desperate Yim Wing Chun, from which this style gets its name, and all through the lineage of grandmasters all the way to Moi Yat. 
the dedication of these martial artists has taken their style of kung fu to thousands and millions here in America and all over the world who have learned this and for many made it the centerpiece of their physical and spiritual person. And even after the passing of Moi Yat, the torch was passed on to a new Wing Chun grandmaster, Moi Dong. Moi Dong studied under Moi Yat beginning in 1980 and was fortunate to have been close to Moi Sifu for the next two decades until the grandmaster Moi Yat passed. Moi Dong used to commute from his home in Philly to New York Chinatown to study under Moi Yat. And the dedication you read about in all the great Wuxia novels and the stories from all the martial arts masters of their commitment to the perfection of their craft. Yeah, Moi Dong into his generation. Hey, he keeps it going in Virginia today and at his other schools. And hundreds of dedicated Sifus, just like Moi Dong, around the world are doing the same thing. They didn't have the honor of studying under Moi Yat, but not everyone gets to learn Wing Chun from the teachers who could trace their lineage to the direct descendants of the five elders of Shaolin Temple. So, I hope you found this little overview of the history of Wing Chun Gong Fu to your liking. There are dozens of other styles that have been embraced all over the world by the masses. And beyond these most popular Chinese martial arts, there are hundreds more that originated in China and styles that were introduced from other countries. Thailand, Brazil, Japan, Korea. So next time you're watching some Kung Fu display in person or on the silver screen. I hope you'll all appreciate the longevity and richness of Chinese martial arts. It's one of the many things that define this magnificent millennia-old culture. A lot of people say, yeah, Chinese culture, so cool. Well, this is one of the reasons. What else is there to say? There's plenty more multimedia resources out there for you to go explore if you want to do your own deep dives. These two episodes were only a little Zoma Kanhua overview of the history of Chinese martial arts and Wing Chun. Anyone checking out the China History Podcast for the first time, welcome. Got plenty of stuff for you to go explore. Go to the website at teacup.media. From there, you could hook up with all these other joints who stooped to allow me onto their platform. YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, the usual suspects. You know who they are. Kanko Wu, Spring Autumn, the Spring and Autumn of Chinese Martial Arts, 5,000 Years. I recommend that book if you want to hear more details about the history of martial arts. Thanks to Michael Bangstein for being the final straw that got me to finally take on this subject. And every one of you emailed me since 2010 asking me to cover the subject. I hope you're not too let down. Okay, by the time you hear this, I'll be Manila Bound. Going to be there June 21st to 28th. That's it for this time. I do thank all y'alls for tuning in. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from an underground bunker in an undisclosed location in the City of Angels, Los Angeles, California, the sister city of historic Guangzhou, I'll have you know. Join me again next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.